On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about what we learned, if anything, from the long LRT meeting with Metrolinx on Wednesday. We're talking about bilingualism. If Quebec wants to have French as its official language, what happens if other provinces in this country want to just have English as their official language? Is it time for the bilingual experiment to end? And we're going to talk about one of the most fun, most not serious, but most delightful websites that you're going to find yourself looking at after we talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Long meeting today between members of council and the head of Metrolinx to try and get some answers about the LRT, about cost. Long meeting. I think they may still be going in an in-camera session. Well, the outcome of this now, as of right now, is a two-week delay so city staff can go and get some more information about cost to the city, try and round up some real costs. This is what we talked about on the show last night, real costs. So in the meantime, with the head of Metrolinx answering questions, what did we learn? Well, I want to bring Chad Collins, Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins on for a good reason. We've had Chad on a number of times, and the reason is there are those who are very much all on board with LRT, and we know why they're very much all on board. There are then those who are not on board or not as on board with LRT, and it's they their votes that would have to move for this thing to happen. And Chad Collins falls into that latter category. He joins us now. Chad, d- did you get the answers that you felt you needed to decide one way or another on this one? Uh, no, we didn't. To be very blunt, we didn't. Um, there were answers in really generalities, 50,000 foot level. Um, and that was why it was tabled eventually <clears throat> after the day long meeting, um, Councillor Ferguson and others, uh, you know, stated that there just isn't enough information in front of us to make an informed decision. And, um, it, it, you know, I'll just point out, Scott, and you've covered this story for the last couple of weeks since the announcement. You know, originally, the minister in her speech said it was a $30 million operating cost. Uh, we heard uh, recently from, well, today from Metrolinx and from um, MTO representatives that it was a $20 million operating cost. And then we even had someone today at council who said, well, you know, after all said and done, this thing's going to break even or better. And so I, I don't think anyone in the community, in light of where this project was just a number of years ago with a price tag of a billion dollars, now it's sitting at three and a half billion dollars. I'm not certain there's anyone in this community who believes that this project isn't going to cost us anything. And the fact that we have different numbers being bandied about by provincial representatives is concerning. These are costs that will be borne by city ratepayers. And, um, and if they change in whole or in part over the next couple of years, it's, um, it's for us to deal with. There'll be no assistance from anyone because we will have committed on the dotted line to them. So do you then expect, so city staff has been sent to try and get, and and, I mean, among the things, and I won't go into the whole list, but um, you know, what will it cost to take the H or what will it save to take HSR buses off that route? And and if you increase the number of people riding LRT, what will fares do and on and on? There's a bunch of different things. Do you expect that two weeks from now, city staff will be able to come up with enough answers to give you comfort one way or another? I don't. And I, I, you know, I, I acquiesced today for information. I always think, I even, you know, stated to you several weeks ago, my fear is that we have to make decisions without all the information. So I, I completely supported my council colleagues who uh, who asked for more information. Whatever city staff can come up with, that's great. I think, you know, over the course of the next two weeks to try to determine what the impact is going to be on the HSR is a pretty tall tale. 
And I think it'll take a better part of a year, Scott, for us to determine exactly how the dominoes will fall as it relates to HSR services, how it relates to uh, fares. There's still the open question in terms of what's the fare structure. Is it the same fare to ride the LRT as it is to ride a bus? There's the whole issue as it relates to transfers. If I'm transferring from north uh, south route and I'm getting on the LRT, is there a premium to be paid or is it a simple transfer? And then there's the whole question in terms of who's riding the, the LRT. Uh, I believe today the province confirmed that at, at present that they envision that it's a private sector entity. And, of course, Council's desire is to have our HSR riders um, in the seat as it relates to operations. So what are the impacts of having um, our ATU staff um, riding those trains instead of a, a private consortium? So those are that's a lot of information to come back mm. with in two weeks. I don't think it's going to be in front of us. And, and I really don't believe, as were the comments and in questions and statements today around capital that we have any idea in terms of what this is going to cost. You know that for people who are making are undertaking home improvements right now, the cost of wood is skyrocketed. Uh, steel is at an all-time high. So the numbers they presented today were from 2019. And if anyone thinks you can build something today for the same cost you could in 2019, um, you know, I've got a bridge to sell you. Now, they did say, I think today, that the province would cover any kind of capital overruns, so the, those costs would be covered. But here's the thing, is if, in fact, two weeks down the road, you're going to get these numbers from the city you're talking about, we may not know for a year. The province has said, we can't wait that long, we need it in a sure. month or so. Is there right. anything at this point that you believe would make you vote yes? No, and I, I, we don't have, all, we don't have the, all, all the information, and we won't. And I'll, and I'll tell you that this has been a political push by both levels of government who are on the eve of elections to throw money at this project to keep it alive. And again, we've, I won't go into the whole discussion we had before about the, you know, council just hasn't been involved in these discussions. And, um, and I, and I don't believe that there's anyone in the city who believes that the figures that they're, they've given us over the last couple of weeks are accurate. And so that, that's the problem that we run into. And, um, and I don't think city staff, I think they're in a, a very untenable position of having to come up with answers that I just don't think are out there at this point in time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chad, let me, let me throw this at you because um, Lloyd Ferguson, uh, Ancaster Councillor today, threw something out that I found really interesting and had not crossed my mind until he mentioned it today. And he talked about area rating factoring into this two ways. Mm -hmm. uh, area rating for people who don't know, and the very simple part is different wards in the city pay different tax rates based on services they get or don't get. One thing that was suggested was, look, the, the, the negative is there's a fear that if this thing goes through, area rating will be gotten rid of and everybody will be paying. But what if it was the other way? What if city council locked in somehow the idea that, you know what, the wards that have LRT are going to be the wards with their taxes through area rating that cover any overruns over a certain amount for operation. Would that not mollify those in the suburbs who may be against it or those in the fringes who don't have it? Would that not be a way to make those who really want it in their backyard happy and everyone else happy? It might. I, I'm not sure you'd have a happy constituency on the mountain. or the, I can only speak for the East End. I, I know my constituents wouldn't be happy with having to pay the full freight of of the operating costs associated. No, I'm with saying LRT. the opposite. I'm saying the opposite. Well, I, I, I fall into wards one to eight. So my, my constituents in ward right. five, if we use okay. the area rating example, it, the LRT would go to Eastgate. That's in my ward. Um, and I, I don't believe my constituents would want to, to pay, pay the entire 
operating costs split up between wards one to eight. It certainly might be a little bit more palatable for the suburbs, but I don't think it was ever envisioned, as Lloyd mentioned today, that this would be area rated uh, because our, our area rating policy deals with HSR services and conventional transit and, and didn't uh, envision anything to do with, with rapid transit. So I, I, I think that's probably a discussion that's going to happen at a later date, but I, I'm, I'm not certain that uh, based on the current policy that um, there's anything there that would suggest that the current policy forces that issue, so to speak. One other really, there were a lot of interesting things today, whether it was interesting to help or just really interesting, but one really interesting thing I thought today from uh, Phil Verster, who was the CEO of Metrolinx, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he said, the LRT is more about development than commuting service, which mm-hmm. I, uh, do you share that view? Is that what this is about? That really this no. has all, this is not about transit. This is just about development or mostly. No, I don't share the view. And, and you know, it's interesting, Scott, because um, a number of years ago when we contemplated LRT for the first time, the first question was, if it's rapid transit, how much quicker is it than the B-line bus? And so for my constituents who get on at Eastgate and they're taking the B-line bus to McMaster, I took that same route when I went to McMaster. Um, I, I was on average to university in, in about uh, 30 minutes or just over 30 minutes, depending on the traffic. The LRT is to shave three to four minutes off of that uh, travel time. So, I, you know, for us at on council, it was well. That's not much of a, a, a that's not much of an incentive for me to get out of my truck or my car in the East End and start using uh, transit because, you know, essentially it's not very rapid. And the and the comment at the time from Metrolinx and others and those who people who advocated for the system was that it. You know, in 20 or 30 years, when the city expands down in the lower city and downtown, there'll be a lot of congestion. And so it's just a matter of time before those, the time differences between those two services, um, before that expands and before there's some justification for people to start using it. So they've lost, that, that argument hasn't been raised in, or in, the, in that justification hasn't been raised in about four or five years now, because there really isn't an argument to make. The B line is a great service. And it gets people to where they want to go very quickly. From that, people started to talk about, well, look at all the infrastructure we're going to get. They're going to break up all the sidewalks. They're going to pour new sidewalks. They're going to break up the pavement. We'll get new lanes. And then we were on to development because the infrastructure argument didn't work and wasn't resonating with the community. And now it's, you know, if you build this rapid transit, um, development's going to flock to it. And you're going to see all kinds of increases in tax in new taxes. And that's where people now are at the ludicrous point to say this could all almost be a break even scenario. Well, when you look at other communities like Kitchener, Waterloo, their assessment really didn't change. And when I say assessment for your listeners, that's the term that we use for for new taxes that come into the city on an annual basis. After they constructed LRT, they certainly witnessed the kind of development we're seeing here downtown but it wasn't something that that pushed the revenues through the roof. And so I I don't buy into Mr. Verster's um, assessment. And I don't think there's any information out there to suggest that the city is going to get some kind of a windfall in new tax revenues from the development that, um, that he thinks will come our way. That is Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking the time tonight. Thanks, Scott. Uh, you know, it's an interesting, that, that, you know, that is a huge debate right now. That last point, that's a huge debate right now about is there going to be a massive amount of new taxes created through development or is it not? And is this really about speeding people through the city or is it about the opportunity to fix the infrastructure and to build the development? 
look, the reality is, and and I mean, I really believe this now. The CEO of Metrolinx could have come in today and said anything. And those who support it, we're still going to support it. And those who oppose it, we're still going to oppose it. Because I don't think that there's a... I don't think there's a way at this point for anyone's position to change really. So, you know, it almost seems like almost like we may as well have just had the council vote on it today. I mean, I, if you had taken a vote today, now it, many, 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 it was 13 to two to defer for two weeks. But if you had asked them today, yes or no on LRT, I will bet you money. The same number would pop up in two weeks when this thing comes up, nothing's going to change, but well, at least we'll look into it. And maybe, maybe find some numbers that we didn't know before. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, maybe the week before, you lose track. Uh, Anyway, the prime minister, you'll recall, just a few days ago was talking and said Quebec would be able, would be allowed to rework the Canadian constitution to kind of serve its purposes. You remember this discussion, right? We had a discussion on the show. Quebec could could declare itself a nation and could declare French its official language. Now, if this turns out to be true, there are those who believe that legally the prime minister was on some pretty shaky ground, so we don't really know. It's unclear. But if it turns out to be true, there is a very interesting question that spins out of this. If Quebec then has just one official language, should the rest of Canada, where French is in many parts very seldom spoken, be allowed to declare English? as the lone official language. In other words, should the bilingual experiment that we've had for decades and decades now be ended? My next guest has written about this several times over the years. He's a writer. He's a political commentator. He writes a weekly column for the Washington Post about Canadian issues for an American audience. His name is JJ McCullough, who joins us now. JJ, thanks for doing this tonight. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, I think it's probably without question that if Quebec makes French its lone official language and gets the go-ahead to do this, there will be calls in some parts of Canada for English to be declared the official language. And the question is, should it be? Should that be allowed then? My personal preference is that we do not have official languages at all. I actually think that this is something that is not generally good for democracy, sort of broadly understood. I don't think it's good to have one official language, two official languages, three official languages. I think you just kind of, you have public services that address the needs of the majority, and then you make sort of special exemptions for people that are part of linguistic minority communities, but you don't sort of get into this business of sort of declaring an official sort of hierarchy of languages. That's my own personal belief. And I think, you know, broadly speaking, most Canadians outside of Quebec generally believe that, you know, I think that most of us recognize that we are living in a majority English speaking society, majority English speaking provinces, and therefore it's rational to have mostly English speaking services. But I do think that in most parts of the country, and I think this is where the sort of culture clash comes in, the business of saying like declaring Alberta or BC or Ontario is an English only sort of province, strikes a lot of people as discriminatory. And I think that uh, what Premier Legault is doing in Quebec is very obviously discriminatory. And it's only because we judge Quebec and the French language by a different standard that it's sort of allowed to pass without controversy. Well, I looked it up because I had to. I, I was not aware. Um, but the the 2016 census, I was trying to find out how many people in this country actually speak French. And the 2016 census 
said it was about 18%, 15% of young Canadians and 18% overall outside Quebec speak French. Um, and in 2012, which is the latest numbers I can find, we were paying something like $2.4 billion a year for official bilingualism in this country. And, and it does make you wonder then, is that money well spent? Because you got to believe it was two, if it was $2.4 billion in 2012, it's a lot higher now. Is that money that we're using well? No, I, I don't think so at all. And I, I think that bilingualism is kind of this sort of almost religious idea that the government of Canada has been committed to with a sort of religious fervor for 50 years, despite the fact that it like a never accurately described the country in the first place. Canada has never been a bilingual country. It has always been a predominantly English speaking country with a French speaking minority and then many other minority languages as well. And then the other side of it, too, is that despite 50 years and despite the billions and billions of dollars we've spent on this, uh, Ottawa has not been successful in creating a bilingual country. You know, the old man Trudeau believed that, you know, uh, official language policy, making Canada bilingual in the Constitution and passing the Official Languages Act and so on and so forth, would have the effect of making French more, you know, present in English parts of Canada. And that just did not happen because everything that we know about linguistics and linguistic science suggests that that's not really how languages penetrate. Language uh, fluency is gained because people perceive a need to speak that language to communicate in their day-to-day -day lives. And the fact is, is that for the vast majority of Canadians, they have no need for French in their day-to-day -day lives, and so they don't develop it. And then so what happens is that the country winds up being ruled by this 18% minority who happens, through some quirk of their own background, to have grown up fluent in these two official languages. So it's a monstrously undemocratic policy. Doesn't it do something, though, to draw the country together to have the, you know, the people in Quebec feel like the rest of the country has something in common with them? Well, I mean, clearly not if they're becoming this monolingual French society. I mean, you would expect that's the other sort of way in which this policy has clearly failed is that English has not made great strides in Quebec any more than uh, French has made great strides in, uh, mm. in English Canada. The, the French Canadians have sort of doubled down on the idea of French and French alone being the, basically like the beginning and end of their entire cultural identity. So that's something that proponents of bilingualism have to answer for as well, in part because, you know, they've kind of turned a blind eye to, again, what uh, sort of linguistic supremacist policies that I think if they were being practiced by English speaking politicians in other parts of Canada would be seen as tremendously uh, offensive and, and prejudiced. Okay, but what happens if the rest of Canada were to apply the same constitutional rules that Quebec is trying to use and voted to do this, to go unilingual English? What would happen to our nation? Because I, I believe Quebec would freak out. They probably would, and they would use it as an excuse to just double down on, on their sort of French uh, first policies. I mean, the fact is, is that... Uh, what Quebec is doing is, is making policy for a single province, right? They're declaring themselves a unilingual uh, French society. And, you know, in theory, the other provinces could declare their official language English exclusively or, you know, Chinese or Portuguese or whatever they wanted. But the fact is, is that Ottawa would still be bilingual. And so in some respects, that to me is, is the most sort of serious concern is that provinces can declare their official language, whatever they want. But the national government, the most important level of government will always be bilingual because that is unambiguously entrenched in the most difficult to amend part of the constitution. In fact, the French English status of, uh, of Ottawa has more constitutional protection than even basic human rights like freedom of speech.
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. JJ, I think it was you. I think I'm quoting you here, so correct me if I'm wrong. Who made a point which I thought was really fascinating, which is the argument that those born in Quebec who are exposed to both languages early have a huge advantage when it comes to getting well-paid, highly paid civil service jobs with the federal government. That if we were to decide all of a sudden to get rid of bilingualism, that that was not an obligation or a necessity. There are a lot of people around the country who would have better access to those jobs. If you express it that way, I think there's an awful lot of people around the country in Alberta and Manitoba and BC and out east who would say, hey, I'm up for that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me. I've been arguing about bilingualism for quite a long time. And I definitely do find that this is the most persuasive argument against bilingualism, which is this idea that in any society, if the top jobs in that society are reserved for a minority, regardless of what that minority is, you know, it's a religious minority, ethnic minority, geographic minority, or linguistic minority, that strikes us as not a very good democratic society. Sort of in a properly democratic society, there should be low barriers to entry for the maximum number of citizens. And that includes access to, you know, the most prestigious, powerful, high-paying jobs in the federal public civil service. And we are doing ourselves a tremendous disservice not only at the level of, of sort of discrimination, but also just when we think about the vast majority of, of Canadians that are being excluded from these important positions because they do not possess a skill that, you know, only 18% of Canadians have. This ability to be fluent in both languages is just such an arbitrary skill at the end of the day, because we do know that most, Cana most Canadians who can speak French can also speak English, and we know that the vast majority of Canadians can speak English. So it's not a very purely rational policy. It's, it's a classic example of sort of triumph of ideology over common sense. And I really think it's time that we sort of get over our sentimentality about this and just start looking at it with a little bit more cold-eyed uh, pragmatism. Well, I mean, it's a hard argument to make that, you know, someone who is born in, I don't know, Northern Ontario somewhere or a small town in Manitoba or Alberta, where literally no one in their little world speaks French, that you're going to have the equal opportunity to learn that language. You could do it online. You could do a course, I guess. But if you can't practice it, the obstacle, as you described, the obstacle to being able to learn what seems to be a necessity is difficult and is aren't we all about these days trying to remove obstacles to people so they don't have an extra difficult climb if they're if they're capable they should be able to get that job absolutely and it's 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 wild to me that uh, you know sort of otherwise very progressive people become very sort of cold-hearted about this kind of stuff when it comes to bilingualism right if you in many other sort of realms of society, we're re-examining barriers to entry. We're talking about systemic discrimination and the different ways that sort of subtle things prevent uh, a full diversity of people from accessing, you know, positions of power and influence and wealth and so forth. You know, people, I think, are much more willing to sort of say things like, you know, should everybody have to have a university degree in our society to get these top jobs? A lot of people would say, no, that's a kind of discriminatory policy. You know, should everybody have 
come from a sort of wealthy background? It's like, no, of course not. But for some reason, when it comes to the question, should everyone be fluent in this arbitrary second language? A lot of people say, well, of course they should. And if they can't, well, they're just lazy and they're not trying hard enough. And it's their own damn fault if they're, you know, uh, receiving the short end of the stick. It seems it seems a little bit preposterous to me, because like you said, it, uh, learning a skill in a second language is very difficult to do at the best of the times if you have no uh, perceived need for that language. And it's very difficult, I think, to just kind of be so insensitive to that, to that struggle and present it as if it is all just the fault of the person, all just the fault of the unilingual person that he somehow can't sort of better himself in this way. Now, what's really interesting about this, I know there are people listening right now who are saying, well, wait a second, come on. Uh, you guys are trying to talk down French and all this. Listen, the, the, this discussion started because one of the provinces said, we want to get rid, essentially, of one of the languages. We, we're not all that keen on bilingualism. So, uh, you know, it's, it, like it's, a, it's a tricky conversation to have. And where it's really tricky, I think the prime minister finds himself in a really weird spot, a really difficult spot. If all of a sudden, let's say Alberta, because that seems like the natural place where this would happen. If Alberta were to say, we're declaring English as our official language. And the prime minister then had to step into that and say, wait, you're not really allowed to do that. After saying to Quebec, you can. This is now a really interesting puddle that he's standing in if this were to ever come down the pipe. I mean, the prime minister is lucky, though, because no politician in Canada will actually do that. Like even a conservative like Premier Kenny in Alberta is too fundamentally committed to the idea of, of diversity and multiculturalism and, and this sort of thing to ever suggest such a thing like Kenny, I think, would sort of think if he was to, or, you know, Ford in Ontario or, you know, my guy out here in B.C., like if any of these people were to sort of suggest, no, we're going to be an English only province, they would get so much flack from it, including from some of their own voters. So it would just. Uh, it's only because, I don't know. I don't know. After the pipeline so. thing, after the pipeline thing with Quebec and saying we don't want Alberta's pipelines coming through and all the rest, I think Kenny might find some fertile ground if he were to say, fine, we're English only out here. Yeah, maybe he might be the only one, like, but he might be able to find it. Maybe if he framed it as, as yeah, a, a sort of, you know, sticking it to Quebec kind of thing. But, uh, but I, I just don't think Kenny has it in him to sort of mm. do something like that. Because, again, like I say, like, you know, our conception of what it means to be Canadian is just very different than it is in Quebec. Like in Quebec, this kind of stuff is not seen as prejudiced or bigoted. It's not, I mean, the Quebecers are literally declaring themselves a nation and not even like declaring themselves a nation in the sense of like Quebec, the province is a nation. If you look at the way it's written in French, it's like the Quebecois people are a nation. Like we are a nation state. The French Canadian Quebecers consist of a nation within Canada. And then the province of Quebec is kind of the political expression of that, of those people, right? Like that's not something that we think about in any other part of the country. We don't think of it like the Ontario people as a kind of yeah, like English speaking, like, you know, nation state, right? Like it's just the Quebecers are just in a completely different world when it comes it to It is a different stuff. spot. JJ, we got to run, unfortunately. I wish we had a lot more time, but love having you on. JJ McCullough, you can read him online, look up his stuff in the Washington Post and on his website, uh, jjmccullough.com. Uh, lots of stuff there. JJ, really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today, I was just up to my absolute eyeballs in work, which was the worst possible time to stumble upon this website that I did. Thanks to Alan Cross's uh, Journal of Musical Things. We have Alan Cross on the show regularly. Uh, great guest. And today, 
I mean, I love Alan Cross, but man, did he screw me up today because I had so much to do and I saw this website that he linked to and I made the horrible mistake of clicking on it. And my goodness, this is now one of my new favorite things. And thankfully, I have a little bit of discipline when it comes to work. So I put it aside. However, I can easily see myself wasting a lot of time on this. If I come on the air tomorrow and I sound like I am totally sleep deprived, it's probably because I was up till four o'clock in the morning watching tonight. Uh, It's called My 80s TV. Now it has brothers and sisters, my 70s TV, my 90s TV, and now my what do we call that? Aughts, zero zeros TV, the aughts TV. What is this? What am I? Okay. My thousands TV, my two thousands, whatever. Aughts. I like aughts. It has a very sort of classy ring to it. What is this? Well, the best I can describe it, it's a website that kind of looks like a TV that plays clips and links to shows and ads and music videos and news and sports from the decade that you have clicked clicked onto. So when I did my ADCV, it was a an absolute time machine flashback to the 1980s, to living in that time as if you were right there. Uh, it is brilliant. It is it is it is wonderful. And and for anybody who's grown up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or aughts, uh, this is a time machine flashback to your youth. The guy behind it lives in San Jose. His name is Joey Cato, and he joins me now. Joey, thanks for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, how are you? Listen, there are a million billion tons of junk online. Most stuff online, frankly, is crap. Uh, This is awesome. Well done on this one. This is a brilliant idea. Thank you so much. It it was an absolute uh, pleasure to put together. Where did the idea for this come from? Were you sitting there one day and had like an 80s acid trip back moment? Did you see Clara Peller saying, where's the beef in a Wendy's commercial and said, I got to build a website for this or what happened? (laughs) <laughs> a great question. Um, well, I've always been a, a super uh, sucker for nostalgia. I, I grew up as a child of the 80s. And so I, I've, always, I've always been like super nostalgic about that decade. And um, there's multiple factors, I'd say. I think one that kind of put me over the edge was I had read um, this, uh, this short novel called Ready Player One. And uh, I don't know if you've read it, but it's basically the premise is it's set in the future, but everyone is sort of uh, respecting the 80s in a, in a virtual world environment. And so just reading that and making me think back to that time, I, I and, and also I was working on uh, some small web projects at the time, trying to learn more about web development. And I thought it just kind of occurred to me, what if, what if you built like a virtual TV? And so I started mm. playing around with that concept. And is there, was, was there, is there anything else like it out there? I mean, you can find stuff on YouTube, of course. You can go and look up shows or clips or news events or whatever, but was there anything like this, like a collated central clearinghouse for these things? You know, I, I couldn't find anything directly like it, but there was, uh, there was something called, I don't know if it's still around, but the 90s button.com, but, but the basic, uh, concept was that if you go to that website and you click on a button every time you you click on a button it shows like a random music video from the 90s and then then you also have that next to uh like uh mc hammer dancing animations which really (laughs) sold the 90s uh vibe (laughs) (laughs) so now i'm guessing and I could be way wrong on this, but I'm guessing it based on what you've built here, you must have been a TV junkie at some point in the eighties because you've sort of tapped into exactly what watching TV in the eighties was like. Oh, thank you. I, I, 
so yeah, I actually, yeah, I did grow up in the eighties. And so I, I remember the, the pain of uh, channel surfing aimlessly, <laughs> you know, and trying to find something to watch. And I thought, you know, it was very important. I share that with future generations who, you know, the people that grow up today that have like, uh, that are able to immediately stream or, or jump to some content they want to watch. I thought it was important that we, that, that people recognize how painful it was back then. So, Here's the thing, and for people, and I, I would encourage people, as I say, to go look this up after after we're done, not right now, you're missing the whole point if you go now, but after we're done, after the show, go look this up, but this is, this is more than just grabbing a bunch of YouTube clips, like how do you, I don't understand how you did this, because I don't understand how it works, because it seems like there is just such an unbelievable amount of content in each of these, how did you build it? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, essentially what it is, you're, you're absolutely correct. It's, it's basically YouTube under the hood. Uh, I, I spent, I'd say when I worked on the first uh, decade, which was the MightyTV.com, I, I spent a good amount of time just manually uh, searching around on YouTube, trying to find content uh, and curating it, I mean, you know, picking the right content that, that makes it, that, that made I guess a lot of the research went into making sure like, uh, like if I was looking up content for 1983, that I had to be very careful about picking something out of that, that that was released during that time. And um, so that's, I guess, one phase of it is picking content. The second part of it was kind of building that illusion uh, that when you change the channel, it, it feels like you're really flipping channels. And so the, the, the basic thing I'm doing there is I'm, I'm playing a static animation, which is essentially overlapping like your standard YouTube loading screen. And, uh, playing the staticky sound and then doing some glowy effects around it just to kind of make, kind of distract you for a moment while, while it's actually loading or buffering the, the YouTube content. But to find it though, I mean, you, you do have a real job. I understand this though must've <laughs> taken hundreds of hours to go and digging all this stuff and find it. Cause it, it's one thing, the way you've got it set up, I don't have to do any work really, but you had to go look for these things, each one originally. You're right. Actually, originally that was the case. It did take a take a while. I mean, the first version of the website did not have much content, um, but over over time, I got a little smarter. Um, I basically one of the things that was super helpful to me is I I added a suggestion box, and that would let you know, users of the website contribute or suggest their own content. Um, and so, a lot of what you see today is, is leveraged off of uh, submitted content. Um, also, more recently, I, I've uh, I've looked across YouTube and there's actually a lot of great content and curators out there. And, um, so I will, I will try to find like, uh, like for example, I'll find collections of commercials and then I'll, I'll add that to the list. And anyone that's watching the TV, I uh, just wanted to point out that you always have the ability to, to jump directly to YouTube in case you want to follow more of that, uh, mm. that content creators, uh, collection. And you just mentioned something that's very weird. And, and this, this goes back to the whole nostalgia idea. And I don't know that I could explain it. I don't know if you could explain it, but I was watching for a bit today. As I say, I'm going to do more later. And weirdly, the one thing that really resonated as I'm watching this was the old commercials. And why in the world? Because back then we were trying to do anything not to watch these commercials because they were interrupting our shows. And now I watch and it's like, I got to watch those commercials. For some reason, they were the things that really clicked. Yeah, isn't that isn't that funny? That's that's, that's a, that is actually a pretty fascinating thing. Uh, if I had to guess, I, I would I would think the constant exposure of those commercials when we were younger. <laughs> we probably saw those 
each of those commercials a hundred times while we were trying to ignore them. Well, yeah, because, you know, now if you do this with the 2020s, with everyone having PVRs and everything else, how many commercials would you really know? 10 years from now that are on the air right now, how many commercials would you remember? I'm guessing not very many. Uh, but back then, you're right. You, you you had no choice but to watch them. Um, all right, let me let me go back on this one for a sec. Were you looking for any content when you were doing like the 80s or the 70s? Is it literally, I'll take anything from that era and just dump it in here because I just want to fill it? Or was it specific? Uh, good question. Uh, I think the original concept was to just build a basic sort of net feeling that you're watching an old vintage TV. And so mm. to that extent, that's why I, I, I broke it down into the categories that you see. Uh, those categories have always been the same. Uh, but, you know, essentially like uh, some movie trailers, commercials, game shows, uh, maybe some news sources. I, I, I like the news and the ads because to me that more personal personalizes the nostalgia. Like I feel like I can identify better with a particular year if, if I see some news story or I or Actually, the, I guess the biggest thing for me was the music. Uh, if I had to pick one category I loved the most uh, about the 80s or 90s, um, it would be the music. Because I think for anybody, I think everyone has an instant connection when they hear an yep. old song. Yeah, well, when I turned it on, the first thing that popped up today when I turned it on was the video of Say, Say, Say with Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney that I don't think I've probably seen since 1987. Uh, pro- I, I've made a point of trying not to listen to that song <laughs> by and large, but, <laughs> but I saw that and I was like, you know what? Yeah. It, it's like turning on the TV and that is what was on for you down in the States. MTV up here, much music would have been the thing you turn it on and oh, there we go. And that's what's going to stay. Uh, how, what's the feedback been? I mean, obviously I called you, I reached out, but others must've too. You must've been hearing from people about this. Um, actually the feedback was been, has been very uh, generous and surprising initially. I, I, you know, originally did this as sort of like a labor of love hobby project. And then I put it out on Facebook and then I started noticing people talking about it. And I started, people started giving feedback and I was pretty touched by uh, like the stories people shared. Uh, Someone was like, wrote like a really, I can't remember the exact words, but they sent me like a really long email talking about how it, how much it really connected them with their childhood. And they were, they were just really happy about the website. And so, just seeing feedback like that, you know, that may, that was the most exhilarating feeling ever. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Let's get very deep and philosophical for a minute. I don't know if you're a deep and philosophical guy, but why do you think it does what it does? Why do you think that it creates the reaction that it does? That's a good question. Um, I think for, for me, I, I, I think it's sort of a, uh, when you have different, let me see if I can word this correctly. Uh, when you have different elements of your past, and, you know, if you recall any of those elements individually, it's probably going to give you some sense of nostalgia. But I think when you combine those elements that, that were kind of co-located in time, like seeing a music video from 1983 next to a commercial that was also from 83, I think that sort of magnifies the power of that, that nostalgia. Or I'm just making all this up. That, that's just my th- main theory, I guess. <laughs> It is, uh, it is terrific. Have you, by the way, have you, I know you have to build this, you had to build this and you had to put a lot of work into it. And anyone who looks at this and checks it out, will see the amount of work that's gone into this. You, but before I get into that, you must have, what is your background? What is your, cause to be able to build this, you must have some sort of background in computer programming or technology or something. Oh, uh, so yeah, I guess originally I was working as a, as a game developer for electronic arts, uh-huh. I was working on the Sims. 
And uh, one of the, I was basically a, a UI engineer, and we were using a prod, product called Flash. Uh, I don't know if you remember much, yep. 10 years yep. or 15 years ago. It was pretty much all over the web. <laughs> but around that time, this was back in, I'd say, 2012 or 2013, um, I started reading the writing on the wall that this language was becoming obsolete. Like, they were trying to kill it off because it just it, it stayed around too long and was not very uh, performant. And so what I did with my time, that's basically how I started getting into web development because uh, if, you, if you're doing Flash development as a UI engineer, it, it's very similar to, to working with JavaScript, which is like the main uh, programming language that web developers use today. And so that's really what's sort of like the gateway drug, so to speak, to get me into <laughs> looking into JavaScript, looking into playing around. And, and because of my gaming background, I wanted to just you know, have fun and make, not make, just make sort of an interesting website. So I did a lot, a few prototypes. Those aren't as successful, but uh, this one has probably been, um, I just been lucky enough to, to pick a project that, that I, I had uh, a lot of passion making that, that I'm, I'm so happy to, to know that it, it it uh, got great reception as well. It is. It's a lot of fun. I, and I, I was going to get to the question before and I got myself distracted there, which is um, you had to do a lot of work to build this, but have you caught yourself at times stopping the work and just catching yourself watching those old videos again? Oh my God. Absolutely. Uh, the biggest one, that was probably the eighties TV because like before I worked on the project, I was always uh, really into finding obscure 80s music I, you know, I didn't, I totally missed. And when users started contributing feedback, uh, they started giving me suggestions for songs or, or, you know, videos like, oh, wow, I've never seen this before. And so I would just like totally just uh, stare at all, you know, a lot, I, I would definitely take breaks from the programming just to kind of watch and enjoy, you know. Um, you know, what's funny is I, because I'm an 80s kid, I've, I usually am stuck in the 80s a lot. I listen to that music continuously, even though it's 2021. <laughs> but um, when I recently started on the 2000s TV, um, I started get, going through the same experience again. I started like revisiting or or discovering for the first time certain songs from the 2000s that really resonated. It is, uh, as I say, it's, it's, uh, we're talking because it's a lot of fun. And I mean, heaven knows after the last year plus, we need something that is just fun. We just don't need anything more that's weighty or significant or important. This is, I hate to say, Joey, it's not important. Uh, that's not an insult. This is, this is the opposite of all the crap that we've dealt with for the past year and a bit. It's just a fun diversion. And I'm so glad I found it. It's called My 70s TV, My 80s TV, My 90s TV. Look it up, whatever you whatever area you want to get to. And uh, Joey Cato is the guy behind it. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on your show. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.